Of all U.S. holidays, Thanksgiving is subject to a lot of revision. Not just historical, but cultural. Probably because it was born out of a bit of wishful thinking and patriotism by a woman named Sarah Hale. She was like an OG influencer. In the 1830s, she ran a ladies' magazine, literally called Ladies' Magazine, and it focused on manners and so-called moral fiction. And for decades, she wrote about her idea for a Thanksgiving holiday. One, she wrote, could quote, release us from the estrangement and coolness brought on by distance and political alienations. She wrote books and essays. She lobbied governors and presidents, always asking about Thanksgiving, which she based on the New England Harvest-era dinner she grew up with. But the U.S., she thought, was a young nation that needed more holidays. And this one in her mind could be a partner of sorts to July 4th. Her campaign lasted 36 years. She wrote to governors. She wrote to every president in that time with her request. And it's probably not an accident that of all the presidents she wrote, it was Abraham Lincoln who took her up on the idea for a proclamation. It was in the middle of the Civil War that he deemed a day of thanksgiving and praise and perhaps asked the Almighty to heal the wounds of a nation. It was a time when people were wrestling over what it even meant to be American, about whether or not there would be one America. And honestly, it helps to think about this in the context of the politics of patriotism today. We're at a moment that is precipitous, I'll put it that way. We can tip in a lot of directions right now. On this week's show, as we gather around our Thanksgiving tables with our families, what does it mean to love this country despite its divisions? How can we come together and hold space for the good and the bad of the American story? And what would those conversations sound like if we did? I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. Baratunde Thurston is what some might call an unlikely patriot. When you write a book that's called How to Be Black, you get some interesting responses, especially if you've used a very subtle, motivating language to get people to acquire the property. He's a political commentator, a stand-up comedian turned activist, and a best-selling author. His podcast, How to Citizen, is all about how to wield our power as citizens. In fact, he uses it as a verb. What does it look like for your community to thrive? Make a list of the things you've done to help other people, not just yourself, not just your immediate family, other people in the community. You're citizening when you do all those things. Okay, but here's the thing. A recent Gallup poll says the percentage of U.S. adults of all ages who said they're extremely proud to be an American is at a record low. This year, the Wall Street Journal found that just 38% of Americans say patriotism is very important to them. That's down from 70% in 1998. But Baratunde has not given up on this idea. In fact, he's made a project of trying to understand our country through its land and its people. He's in the second season of his show on PBS. It's called America Outdoors. We started our conversation with when he first understood what it meant to be an American. I remember uh, my mother, Arnita Lorraine Thurston, uh, born and raised in D.C., just like me, and her parents before her, three generations of Washingtonians, born into the nation's capital. And, you know, the participation that my mother invited me into 
was uh, community meetings, was peace vigils in the neighborhood against uh, gun violence and drug deals, was cultural marches and events at Malcolm X Park. So I think my mom was introducing me to America in a pretty well-rounded way. She also just introduced me to some skepticism about the simplistic narrative of America as merely good or exclusively good. His ideas of America have been evolving ever since. There is a lot uh, going on to not be proud of. There is an implicit promise in America that the next generation does better than the ones that begat them. Right. That promise has been broken. We often hear this talked about in the economic sense, but I hear you talking it even more broadly. It is literally true in the economic sense, but it is also literally becoming true in the life expectancy sense. We are collectively dying younger. That's not what the brochure said. You know, most of us didn't choose to be born here, but we buy into an idea implicitly with our continued participation and with the momentum of being a part of a collective identity. So is there value in maintaining and rebuilding it, right? So you and I aren't going to just talk here about patriotism, like here's all the ways that it's not that real or it's not that good, but like I want, you're someone who I feel like you've said about in your career, in this moment of your career, Mm -hmm. rebuilding your faith in America in some really interesting ways, right? And so, yeah, that's why I'm kind of asking you, you know what I mean? It's like, so does it matter? Everyone is way down here. We've just said the numbers. What would it take to rebuild? Uh. (laughs) And is it worth it, right? Like, given what you've said about patriotism, do we need the story? A story, any story. I think we need a story. I think we need a new story. We need to revise, you know, some of the stories we've inherited and make them fit more of us and make them big enough, literally larger stories that can contain who and what America is right now. And we can appreciate that first draft, but also that it was a draft and that it is our obligation and opportunity to rewrite this together. Possibility is the most kind of persistent trait about America that I can connect with. And so, yeah, it's worth it. I think it's absolutely worth it. I think we have to understand that it's not instant. Um, And and what would it mean? What would it look like? I think we people, we humans need a collective story to help us exist together because existing alone is a far worse option. And it does feel like some stories, some newer stories are being rejected. So I think you've pointed out the multiracial, multicultural democracy. Mm Mm-hmm is certainly seeing a backlash. Yes. Yes. A lot of people grew up with a particular promise within the set of promises that defined the American story. And one of these particular promises was that you as a white person get more. You just get more. You're just valued more. We wrote the story in laws. We wrote them in economic rules. We wrote them in housing policies and in medical practices. And even the way you're saying that, I can hear someone challenging that story, right? Someone saying that those are things that I have earned, that those are things my family has earned. 
And you, Baratunde, what you're doing right now is even in this one question, Mm -hmm. kicking at the foundation of that story. And I wouldn't use such a violent metaphor uh, as kicking (laughs) to describe what I'm doing, but I am adding. I believe in our ability and need to embrace paradoxes and multiple truths. And, And so I'll personalize it. I got where I am because I worked really hard. I got where I am because my ancestors worked really hard. I got where I am because I was born into this male body. I didn't work hard at all for that. Not at all. But I was lucky. So I am here by virtue of effort and genetic lottery and social randomness. All of those are true. And so I am not rejecting anyone's hard work. I mean, I embrace my own. I am asking us to accept layers and multiplicity because simplicity just isn't it. We are not simply the result of our individual efforts. And we know that to be true. I also think that at the kernel of every unpleasant Thanksgiving dinner conversation is the inability to deal with that paradox. Yeah. Who I am, what I've earned, what it means. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's there's always a bunch of news stories and like charticles or whatever around this time of year that where we're like, what to do with those political conversations? Um, but so many of those conversations, like the nugget of it is the offense comes when people feel like you are taking a wrecking ball to me mm-hmm. with your political argument, my identity here. You're trashing it and people fight with each other. I mean, am I making that up? It's like every conversation can be boiled down. I no, feel it, like. it's it becomes personal. And that's part of the polarization that has spread throughout society. And it's not limited to the halls of Congress. It's showing up in business transactions and who you buy a chicken sandwich from. And, you know, you got to pick a side in everything. That's risky. But we know in our realist relationships, we are not in relationship with a totally good person or a totally bad person. We know that the children we love and the spouses we marry and the parents who brought us into this world are very imperfect. And we embrace multiplicity, duality, a full spectrum with all those people. We make excuses right, (laughs) for ourselves and for the people we love and we embrace more of them when we're doing our best. I want to ask you a little bit about your show and what you've been doing recently. It's called America Outdoors. It's on PBS. And at, at first, the premise sounds kind of deceptively simple and very PBS. Like, look at this nice young man walking in the woods. He loves America. That's what I thought Uh when I first saw it. I was like, Uh got boots on, ready. (laughs) Ready to go. And then it got hard. (laughs) Hard Mm. things come up on this show. Um, I remember in this Arkansas episode, you visit this town, Elaine, Arkansas, in its history is a massacre. What was it about this place why you wanted to go to it? 
Elaine, Arkansas, in the Mississippi River Delta, cotton country, been that way for a long time. Very poor, very tiny, very black, but not exclusively. And Elaine was the site of a race massacre in 1919, which means in the context of that time and a lot of American history, a, a mob of white people descending on the black community and killing as many people as possible destroying their homes, destroying their lives, taking their property and whatever meager resources they had been able to collect. The excuse for this was that the black people are planning an insurrection, which was used across many territories at the time in what's known as the Red Summer of 1919. Yes, I like I'm always talking about this. I feel like not enough people know about it. No, because it's a part of the story that we don't include when we talk about America's history. It's often described um, as racial riots, but also actual white supremacist terrorism, specifically in that period where, yeah. you know, the, our, our law enforcement departments begin to exist to even mm-hmm. tackle, like, the intensity of it. Uh, so Elaine was the scene of one of these. It's a tragic history. It is a sadly... Um, non-rare part of our history. In this case, it is more devastating than most. Many people have heard of Tulsa, Oklahoma and Black Wall Street and the devastation there and the lives uh, that were taken. But this is an order of magnitude more. It's you know, hundreds uh, of Black people of every age killed. So I went there, uh, not just for that history. We went there because there's a bike trail that exists, the Delta Heritage Trail, a rails-to-trails transformation. And there is a group in Arkansas, Bike POC, uh, Bike POC. Um, as this trail comes into this town, on the rail lines that brought in a lot of federal troops who contributed to that massacre, there's something else possible on the trail now. People are coming in. They're bringing curiosity. They're bringing a need for coffee and money, economic activity. And the mayor, Lisa Hicks Gilbert, wants to make sure that that flow of dollars that comes across that trail lands in the hands of some of these black people who've been denied that opportunity. Uh, What was also powerful about doing this story for us is that so much of our history with land and with nature is not positive in this country. That's not just for black people, but it's especially true for a lot of black folk who were forced to work in these fields, who were lynched by these, you know, with these trees and who were slaughtered on this land. Um, And so to be able to uh, regenerate a relationship with the land based on a multiracial coalition of folks on bikes, (laughs) based on a healing experience, that's, that's really important. This is where I see your work feels different from other things that I've seen. Like in that, that's a good example of literal rebuilding yeah, and uh, acknowledging a thing that happened without just leaving it there. Like a plaque that just says this is a bad thing that happened the end. Like it just yeah. felt like you were trying to say that some, there's another story that could be told that would include more people and still could be good and almost yes. patriotic. You know, to to love this country doesn't mean you celebrate the tragedies. (laughs) That's that's perverse. I'm not arguing for that. It means you acknowledge their part in the story and you work to add to the story such that we don't repeat them, that we make something else in place of it. 
to, to just stop at the acknowledgement is not enough, it's a, but it's an essential step. You know, there, there's, everybody wants to talk about healing, healing and reconciliation, right? We got to heal, we got to reconcile. Yeah. The healing requires an acknowledgement of the harm. You got to understand the, the damage done. You got to understand the injury. Doctors don't just start applying medicine randomly. Right? Yeah, but acknowledgement a alone is not enough. And maybe it's my post-awakening cynicism, the 2020, that there was a sense that simply acknowledging something. Yeah. Something really basic. <laughs> like whether or not a black person's life <laughs> matters equally matters. than to other people. Yeah. yeah, That once you had done the work of that acknowledgement, well then... Let's like, this we is good. great. We, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's sadly that's not enough. Or even like, you know, not to it's be a hater, land acknowledgement sometimes, yeah. you know, for Native American. And I'm like, we're still in a conference room. Like, you're still doing the thing you were doing. <laughs> like, I just, I get it. But I also, there's a part of me that feels like acknowledgement alone is not sufficient. You are correct. Congratulations. You can advance to the next level. Of cynicism. <laughs> of citizening. <laughs> of citizening. Oh, that's better. Acknowledgement. That's acknowledgement is necessary but not sufficient. Uh, and so Elaine was, you know, a part of that too. For me as a black person, it was important to ride a bike along those train tracks, which were also murder delivery devices, and to laugh with joy with other people in that same space. It, it was also important, not just for my black part, but for my American part and my human part. And this bike group isn't just black and brown people. It's, it was truly multiracial. There's white people part of the group. Right. There's every shade is represented because we got to do this together. It's not, you know, it's not just like, oh, we got to fix the white people. You know, there's something broken in them. They won't acknowledge the truth and they're keeping all of us back. There's a little piece of the story yeah, but it sounds like have you have own. heard that though. That that's a I have contributed to that. Of course, oh, yes. it's part of it's okay. part of my evolution. It's not. Yes. I mean, it's a natural. It is. It has been the uh, the kind of default state of affairs when it comes to seeking justice. We change the systems. We change the laws. We get white people to be less bad, right? Like that's the understating thing. That's the subtext of all of this. Let's fix them. And meanwhile, we have our own healing to do as well. And that is not centered on their attitudes and experiences. It's centered on our history and our inherited trauma and our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with this physical space in the form of these outdoors and this land, which Elaine got a little piece of that. And there've been other moments in the series in America Outdoors, even more personal and in our Oregon episode, I had my own you know, unexpected moment that, that I hope people check out. After the break, what happened in Oregon, and more. It was extremely, extremely physically emotional. Lots of tears. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish. As part of Baratunde Thurston's trip to Oregon, he was all set to climb a tree with a local named Dustin. Dustin is an arborist, um, and he is a beautiful, beautiful soul, beautiful man. And we were going up this tree to experience that and have him talk about his life and his story and his relationship with nature. That's what the show does. It's an, it's an outdoor show, but it's focused on people. Um, and so we find people with a connection to nature for many reasons, including they work out there. <laughs> so Dustin works in the outdoors and he was taking me up this very big tree and I reached a point where um, I couldn't go any further. And and some because of it was you were physical. scared, tired? Because I was overwhelmed um, with emotion. Hmm. Uh, because I had reached a psychological limit. Uh, partially physical, partially exhaustion maybe, but there was something else in the moment of pause that I I couldn't fully name or explain. I just knew, no, like we're good. We're done. We're not going to finish this. And I'll be happy to talk to you back on earth. <laughs> As we were maybe 40, 50 feet up, which is the highest I've ever climbed. Um, at that size tree, you're not actually climbing trees. You're ascending rope uh, that is adjacent to the tree and hanging from a very tall branch. So I'm up here dangling from rope. And that was not something I felt great about. And that was uh, a moment that just triggered some memories, some pain, some uh, historic drama. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. One thing that happened to me during the uh, George Floyd months is when you watch the video, you hear him cry out for his mother. Yeah. And at the time, my infant had been born March 2020. And mm. in my nightmares, I imagined his cries, that he was like calling for me. It was a very visceral, like me connecting to something in the news, but something, again, cultural and personal and like unexpected in a very visceral way. So when yeah. you say, I was feeling all these things hanging from a tree, my brain goes in too many directions. I felt a wave of anguish, grief, and pain on behalf of 
my ancestors who've been through things like that, who have been lynched, who have a relationship with trees, which is not at all positive. <laughs> it's not about trimming them and healing them and appreciating them. It is about uh, being victimized uh, by people who abuse those trees and conscript them into very, very dastardly service. And um, I felt a limit that I had reached where it got personal for me. You know, there was this like kind of general memory and ancestral kind of recollection, but then there was an individual sense of, I, I would push myself to kind of keep going and I didn't want to. And I just made a decision to not continue. It was an important moment of self-determination, of assertion, uh, of, of holding a boundary, you know, around who I am and, and what I'm willing or unwilling to do. And, and that was a deeply honoring moment for those ancestors who I was thinking of, right? <laughs> But that's something really powerful. It's the most powerful thing that's happened to me making any kind of show ever. And it was extremely, extremely physically emotional. Lots of tears. And Dustin, to his credit, felt me, you know, heard me open up and embraced me, literally. Just held me. And he's like, I am so sorry I have no concept, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't know what that's like. I can only imagine, and I'm so sorry. And he just held me and we cried. And that was like him embracing my story. You know, it was just, it was a beautiful healing moment and a wound opened up that I didn't even know was there. And so now he and I, as individual humans, we have some new chapter in our stories, you know, of ourselves and of what's possible with these beautiful majestic trees who do so much work on our behalf and to this story of what this country is um it that moment captures so much of what i want for all of us in the collective sense uh, of story of america and patriotism And who we think we are, in a way, is patriotism, right? It's the thing you aspire to be, and it is the best um, fulfilling the ideals of your country, right? The best version of that. What's your definition? My definition of patriotism, um, I have two. I have the one I think people think it means, and I have the one that I think it means. I think people think patriotism means celebration, uh, adoration, and kind of lionization of their country. I think it means repping your country, you know, waving the flag and singing the songs and believing in, in a positive sense, the, the positive attributes of your country and screaming those from the mountaintop. So there's, there's a level of marketing associated with the patriotism that I've perceived the we're number one. Yeah, that's a one. little that's... bit of cynicism though, right? I mean, it's a story. Who doesn't want to tell a good story about themselves? Yes. Um, but I think the where it comes up short is when that story gets challenged 
and you introduce some truthful element of the story that doesn't align with rah-rah positivity, many people have a hard time with that. And they also define patriotism as a rejection of that true story. And so there is a deeper patriotism that is possible when we embrace the complexity and say, yeah, we've, we did some great things and we did some dirt and we're still here and we still have possibility to be even better than we were before. But it doesn't serve us to pretend that it was always all good. This is probably the part that nationally, in terms of the culture wars, we reckon with most right now, right? Yeah. The like, what does that story look like? Um, and what does it mean to critique it? And is there such thing as critiquing it too much all the time to the point where you're destructive to the project itself, right? Hello, About James things. Baldwin. And yeah. many others. But that feels um, like the kernel of the discussion right now, right? Like the breaking down of the story and what goes up in its place. It is the kernel, but proportions matter in kind of painting a picture of that divide. And there is, uh, I don't believe any curriculum, formal curriculum taught in this country, which is in any sense, majority critique. Right? We're, we're not in a world of American history as taught in middle schools or high schools in this country being 51% America's garbage, right? We're, we're at some ratio of 90% positive, 80% positive, maybe 70% positive. I think the folks who project that fear and, and hold that fear are really attuned to kind of any critique. If there is an ounce uh, of critique, in, in the court, I don't know why I went to a liquid measurement metaphor, but here I am. Uh, that's too much, and it poisons the entire batch. And uh, I, I don't think that is healthy, uh, but it's hard. It, it's it hard is. For a lot of and one of the yeah. reasons why I wonder that vulnerability exists is and actually because of something you said. I'm like drawing this connection now where you said America is a faith-based institution but not necessarily in the religious sense, in the marketing sense. It just requires a deeper faith to maintain it. So you could see that some challenge to a simple American story of we great, <laughs> city on a hill, hoorah, uh, some challenge to that break down someone's faith because they're like, no, that's what my daddy did. Devil's, oh. ad, devil's advocate, <laughs> right. okay? Like never, you my said daddy our, would never do daddy. that to me. Yes. Right. So something like the founding fathers, right? Yeah. Like in the whole, like, did the founding fathers have slaves? Did they do this? Did they do that? Why are you talking about that? Let's talk about the thing that they created, which was American Nobody talk democracy. about my mama. Yeah. yeah. So you can see how that, how people might want to preserve that story in a certain position. Yes. Um, to, quote unquote, the, to keep the faith. To keep the faith. But my critique of that sensitivity to critique is that it is a weaker faith that cannot withstand challenge and get deeper in response. Right. Here's a, here's a short personal story to illustrate this. During my childhood, I was maybe nine years old, approximate. Uh, we had some serious financial difficulties. It was just me and my mom in the house. She had to declare bankruptcy. And she told me, and she showed me the numbers, and she showed me the books. She also told me, 
you know, I used to do a lot of marijuana. I did reefer. That's how she referred to it. Here's, here's who I was, right? Here's the, some of the stuff I did. And I'm telling you this so that later in life, I don't want you to be surprised by any of these things. I don't want somebody not in this family to come to you and say, you know, your mama did this or that, and you to be tore up about it. You know, you guys ran out of money here. I want you to know now. And she, it was appropriate, it probably in the classic sense, wasn't appropriate for a nine-year-old, but she treated me like someone who could handle that as a way to protect me by honoring my ability to handle that truth and to inoculate me against later sensitivity and denial of that truth. And so someone could chip away at my faith in my mother later in life if they say, yo, your mom was so broke, she declared bankruptcy. What are you talking about? My mama would. And instead I could be like, I've been on that. What else you got? <laughs> you know? Thank you so much for sharing your work with us and talking about it in a different way. Um, mm. It's been a pleasure to watch you develop over the years. I can remember like our first interview about your podcast and it just feels like you're, you're onto something young man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you young woman. Um, <laughs> I am, many of us are down on each other, right? That's, that's down on America, down on the project. We don't feel great about it. And there is a sense of crisis. There is a sense of collapse. There's a sense of death, of something we've held dear, something we've tried, maybe just didn't work. And the other thing I'm trying to embrace is that there is something dying here. There is some story that no longer works. Some of that story was never built for who we are now, and it needs to die. Death isn't just a bad thing. It's a real thing. It's a true thing. And it's part of the cycle of life. And so when we know that death is a part of the picture, how do we treat it? How do we acknowledge it? How do we mourn well? How do we honor? And where most of my work is focused is how do we also see the new life that is emerging? For as much as we are failing in our democracy and frustrated with our elected officials and each other, we're also building some new muscles and we're experimenting and we're figuring out new ways to live together and work together. As painful as it is to see things breaking down, it also means there's a chance to make something else. Yeah, and that, and that letting go is hard. But when we let go of something, we make room for something new. And, and so let's also look to what new could we do here? What is the embrace that is possible after we acknowledge the wound? That was Baratunde Thurston. His show, America Outdoors, is on PBS, and I highly recommend you check it out. That's it for today's episode. If you liked it, please share it. And if you loved it, go ahead, give us five stars and a review. It really helps people discover the show. This episode of The Assignment, a production of CNN Audio, was produced by Lori Gallaretta and Jennifer Lai. Our producers are Carla Javier and Dan Bloom. Isoke Samuel is our associate producer. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show. Mixing and sound design by Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. 
I want to thank you all for listening. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm Audie Cornish. <laughs>